Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, where your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak, help you go next level with your practice, leveraging the four pillars that make a practice bulletproof. Vision, building a dream team, marketing ninja, and financial freedom. Now, let's get into it. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Dental, uh, the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Craig Spodek, along with my co-host, Dr. Peter Boland, and I'm really excited today because we have Dr. Scott Luna from Dental Whale and Breakaway Dental Practice. Scott, you're coming to us from Texas, correct? Yeah, I'm here in uh, beautiful San Antonio where we just got done partying for Fiesta Week, so we're all a little hungover, but I'm still here. Yeah, well, we appreciate you uh, not extending your Cinco de Mayo into the uh, Seis de Mayo, I guess. Um, but uh, it's really good to have you here. I heard you speak at the Voices of Dentistry out in Scottsdale, where we were all speaking together. And wow, man, you just blew me and Pete away. I was feverishly snapping uh, pictures of your slides and just the amount of data that you've accumulated um, from all your background and, and having so many practices that you work with was just just inspiring, man. So if we could delve into some of those points again today for the audience that wasn't uh, lucky enough to hear you, that'd be great. I, I want to go into too, Scott, before I cut Craig off, which I so often do. Um, I've never heard kind of the genesis of your practice and that's really, or, or, your, or your career. So one of my main questions that I've got for this, for this interview or this podcast is kind of talking about your evolution from one to saying, hmm, I can do this again, doing two, and then, and then the momentum that you gained and kind of the struggles along the way. So give us, the, give us a little bit of the, the cursory background of like where you are now and, and kind of the, the, the cliff notes on how you got, got where you are. Sure. So I graduated dental school in 2005, and I, I immediately built a startup practice right out of school. And right when the practice was opened, uh, my wife was expecting our first child. She's very sick. And I broke my back in two places. How'd you do that? Uh, Excessive soccer playing. And uh, I I had a pretty tough injury. So uh, I wasn't paralyzed, but I was in and out of a wheelchair up until three years ago. Wow. So I opened this practice in debt with a brand new baby on the way and a broken back and I realized I couldn't be a dentist. So immediately I was in a different mindset than Mm -hmm. a typical graduate and a typical dentist. Um, Luckily, we opened a practice in the height of the economy and we did a few things that were pretty cool and I was seeing 300 to 400 new patients a month in that one practice. And by month six, I had an associate and by month 12, I had two associates by year four, we had 10 dentists in three locations, and we were doing about eight or nine million in collections a year. And out of those three, wow. Wow. And let that sink in, Pete. It was terrible. Um, you know, I couldn't be a dentist. I kept having more kids the whole way, and everything I thought was didn't really work. I mean, what, the way I did it with one dentist didn't work at three, and didn't work at two locations, and just everything kept breaking down. And I eventually sold those practices at year four uh, out of school to Heartland uh, purely because I wanted the money. Um, I had a back injury. You know, I was, I was slammed. I was busy and I just wanted money. I wanted security. I sold and I did, I did very, very well financially from that sale. Uh, Then I got stupid. Wait, wait, I'm not going to let it slide that easy. You know, uh, so, so, so wait, how many, how big was your practice? It was 9 million. Uh, yeah, somewhere around eight or nine million in collections. And four locations? Three locations. Okay, three locations. And yeah. that's the point where you pulled the plug and sold the Heartland, right? Yeah, and two, two of those locations were only a year old. Um, but we had 10 dentists total, and we sold the Heartland. And then I took all the money I made, and I was stupid. I, I, got, I got confident. And I took the money I made, and I, I built seven more startups but now it wasn't in my hometown of San Antonio. Now I built them in Dallas and I was an absentee owner and every, everything went terribly wrong. Um, even though we had high new patient flow, we had good staff retention. We had good offices. We were built well in ideal locations. I had a hundred new patients a month in my practice in one of those practices and the dentist was only producing 20 grand. 
And I never modeled that being possible. I never said, if we get 100 new patients a month, let's budget for only 20 grand production. Never modeled that. Mm. That's what was happening with these absentee-owned startups with associate dentists. And looking back, you know, I had to hire seven dentists at once. I only had, like, I think we only had 10 apply. And I had to hire seven of them. And I didn't have training. I didn't have- I've, I've been there. I didn't have leadership. I, you know, I was, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And um, so a- after my third child was born, actually five days after my third child was born, I moved, I left my family and moved to Dallas because we were losing all of our money in those practices. And I had- How much did you sink into this, this endeavor? How much did you invest into this endeavor? I, I don't remember, but I can tell you that when I moved to Dallas, we were losing about 120 grand a month. Wow. So you were all that's in. Like a, that's a burn rate for a nice tech startup. Right. I'm a dental startup. Yeah. So um, when I got to Dallas, I lived there for three months and I turned the whole thing around to be profitable. And the way I did it was by innovating how dental practices run, how they're managed. For things that affect case acceptance to new patient flow to retention rates, <coughs> those things I, 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 I had to innovate them so that any dentist could be successful. And that's what I did. And that formed the basis of what then became Breakaway Practices Support Services. So from that experience, I built a call center. I built a billing and insurance center. I built a marketing company, an IT company, a consulting company, on top of the seminars that we were already doing. So and what year was this? I'm trying to, I want to get a really good picture of this. What year is this that you finally said, I got to move? So how old's your third child? Uh, yeah, good. That's a good way of looking at it. I should use my children as the uh, timeline here. So my third kid's five. Okay. So five years ago, you pulled the plug. You're like, I'm losing money. I got to move out to Dallas. And how far away is that from where you live? Five and a half hours. So you're not, you're not commuting on a daily. You're like living in an apartment. I lived lived in Dallas three or four days a week. And then I flew home and Mm -hmm. I did that for three months. But when I was done with that, they were making money. Wow. And more importantly, I mean, it's, it's easy to see now. I didn't know it at the time, but more importantly, I learned a ton of really cool things from that experience. And we then built an infrastructure to do those cool things for other practices that weren't mine. So then I sold those seven practices. Um, who? Because my company, that infrastructure was growing so fast that I needed cash to fund and grow um, the infrastructure. And we were growing too fast. We started breaking. Our quality started breaking because we were growing so fast. So many dental practices were hiring us. So I sold the seven in Dallas, took the cash from those seven and put them into my company here at San Antonio that was called Breakaway Practice at the time. How, how big were those seven? I'm just curious if you don't mind. And again, if you'd rather not share it, you don't have no, to. No, no, I'm an open book about just about everything in my life. Um, I think we were collecting around seven or eight million. Another sale. Wasn't to Harlan this time, was it? No, it was to a local dentist. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how do you think those, how are those Heartland practices, those original ones that you sold, how are they doing right now? Do you have any idea? Yeah, they're about half, the last I saw, they're about half the size. Yeah. I, I just wondered, I mean, I don't want to get tangential, but um, it just seems like when practices get acquired uh, by larger, you know, some of the larger DSOs, they don't always do better which is interesting. You know, the analogy I like to use is that companies like Heartland are really good at making every practice a dependable Toyota. Yeah. If they buy fixer upper cars and turn them into Toyotas, it's a great deal. Or even when they buy Porsche, when they buy 911s and turn them into Toyotas. Yeah, Ferrari might be a problem. You know, that, that, that's my opinion. I don't have the data to back it up, but that's yeah. kind of my experience in my little world in dealing with companies like that. So then you sell these practices um, now. So now we're going, what, like, it's basically, um, how long ago was that? Like two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, I, th- I think it was like two or three years ago. To be honest with you, I've done so much since that, like, my mind is pretty fried on dates. Um, yeah. I think it was about two or three years ago. And 
And so then, you know, we basically went through a dark period in my company at Breakaway Practice where so many dentists um, joined our platform that it broke. For example, our, um, our clearing house that we were using went out of business. That's not even my company, but it's a company that we built our entire insurance backbone around of tracking and yeah. data, pu pushing and pulling data. Um, the call center software we had uh, wasn't built to onboard and handle that many calls. So we yeah. software, actually we went through three different iterations of software. And so all those things created this dark period where um, our quality was lower than where I wanted it. And unfortunately, you know, we, we lost clients, we lost dentists, we got fired by people. And so then I spent about a year and a half innovating, not the dental practice, but innovating the support infrastructure that supports practices. Um, and it reminded me a lot of my first practices because right in the first practice, I was seeing 400 new patients a month. How do you even do that? There's one dentist and five ops. I had to innovate at that volume. I had to go through a similar process in my current company, innovating at a high volume of practices. And, and we did, and we did it through a ton of quality controls and a ton of software builds, custom built software that we, that we use, that we continue building on. And I'm very proud to say that our quality is very high, our performance is really high, and our prices are half what they used to be um, because of the efficiencies we've created. And what's interesting is now when we manage a practice, whether I own the practice or not, the average practice that we connect to grows 24% in two months. And that's without marketing anymore. It's merely plugging into the infrastructure. So I then had this vision, okay, what I really want to do is I want to have a DSO. However, I don't believe in the common way of doing DSOs, at least not for me. See, because in my experience, I was a private practitioner managing practices in San Antonio and did very well. And then I was an absentee DSO owner and did very poorly. And I felt that the best of everything is having private practice ownership in the hands of a dentist, but having that dentist partner with a huge corporate infrastructure. And that's different than the typical DSO. Because I know. In this the, the typical DSO is like, thank you very much. We got it from here, buddy. Take your 20% and go home. your practice, locks you into the chair for five years, yeah. and is really influencing a lot of the operational decisions, which is usually good. But there's a huge segment of our industry and of our profession of dentists that don't want that. Of course. And um, in our model, it's different. It's a different kind of DSO model. But in our model, the dentist can fire the DSO infrastructure, which means the DSO infrastructure has to provide great value, right? And the dentist's own and the DSO also has interest in that practice. It's a partnership. So yeah. I, set the, I set the build that out. And I have a great track when, record. When did you do that? When did you start doing that? Well, I started trying to build it three years ago, but I ran into a major problem. No one wanted to give me enough money to build it without either controlling my company or changing the model to a traditional DSO. Yeah, it's private equity. Right. And private the funny equity. thing is, is private equity is not concerned about what you're trying to, you, what you just described is what Pete and I um, are, are, are also thinking of as well, is a long-term DSO, a DSO that's uh, interested in providing shareholder and long-term revenue. PE cares about what can you do by Tuesday. To roll up. It's a roll yeah, up. Yeah, roll up, acquire, pump and dump. And, and the act of most dentists joining a DSO is an act of resignation. Basically, like, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't care. Give me the cash. Let me run. And what you're talking about is like, hey, let me join forces with you. Let's, get, let's, let's um, uh, create a collaboration and create long-term value for the organization. So it's just a different play. And it's, it's hard, I think, for some dentists to see right away. Um, I, I believe that had this something like this happen in medicine, 
where it wasn't just a physician by themselves or a big hospital group controlled by private equity, but if there was actually a middle, we might see a different kind of result. The industry would look different if it was a course yeah. corrected way back when. It went from, it went from you're right, mom and pop to all of a sudden this massive consolidation. Yeah, it went from mom and pop to Sears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't even go to like Ritz, it didn't even go to like uh, Target. It went mom and pop to Sears or Kmart. It's crazy. So is that your is that your mission, Scott? It, it, since you kind of alluded to that, that you know it would have fixed medicine. Is that kind of your vision or your or your calling is to help kind of do a course correction for the way you see dentistry falling under consolidation? Yeah, what I'm trying to accomplish is to take the best of corporate infrastructure, including all the opportunities and advantages, even the sales opportunities and and valuations. Take what corporate infrastructure has today mm -hmm. and make that available to a private dentist through a partnership. That, that, is, that, that is what we are doing. That way we've already done it, but we continue to grow it. And so, Scott. go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, well, Scott. I couldn't raise the money. So then I told myself, well, you know, I, I'm not going to sell out and give up control of the company and I'm not going to change the model. Um, what I really need though, I just need our company to be big enough that we can qualify just for regular bank debt to then fund the DSO. Yeah. Well, how do I do that? How do I get big enough? And I started thinking through this long process of, you know, how, how, what I tried to reverse engineer this whole thing. If we are a big company, how would we get debt? What would it take to be a big company? How would I accomplish that? And I realized that what I really needed to do is find other innovative companies in dentistry and merge them together with my companies. And preferably, they were companies that did not overlap with mine. Preferably, they were companies that had things I needed and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that's, I found it and that's what I did. I literally partnered with a handful of entrepreneurs in their companies and merged them with my five companies and we created one big parent company that is made up of 10 or 12 other, you know, little companies that were merged together. And we created this parent company and now we have the ability to finance and fund our vision without having to bring private equity in and, and make ourselves a short play company. Because today we have over 850 employees now we support 17,000 dentists. How many offices? Excuse me? How many offices, Scott? I, I'm, I'm not sure. And from those 17,000, um, we have deep relationships in what we do with about 1,000 of them. And of those 1,000, uh, almost 100 of them are inside of our kind of hybrid DSO. So if you look at our company now, we, the, almost everything we do supports private dentists, but we are now growing our kind of hybrid DSO, this partnership with private dentists. And we've got maybe about a hundred practices inside of that group right now. And that is about to grow tremendously. So I, I hope you don't think that, um, um, that we're going to, uh, P and I are talking a lot about exactly what you just said as well. We believe that the DSO, you know, we call it like generation one or two DSO is totally broken. Yeah. We're, we're talking all the time that there needs to be another generation, uh, what we call an iconic DSO, you know, a DSO of all the best practices and how things are going. Uh, um, and a mastermind to support all that with the best practices across the platform. But it's interesting that, um, so, so you, because we also say that if you, you know, the act of joining a DSO is always an act of resignation. And what it sounds like is that the dentist owns a portion of the DSO. They have paper as well on it. They, so you don't transact, uh, you know, if they're practice, you don't give them all cash for it. You have, there's an upside earning, correct? Yeah. So first, let me correct a few things. So I don't actually agree with what you just said as far as it being a resignation. I think that when you look at our, our profession, look at all the dentists in it, they all have different goals and wants and desires. Some brand new grads just want a guaranteed salary with a lot of CE opportunity and the ability to move around the country. 
And a typical traditional DSO is ideal for that. And it's not a resignation. It is it's a great thing to do to join that. That's their goal. And likewise, you've got dentists that want to sell their practices. And maybe in their area, a DSO is one of the only good buyers out there for their kind of practice. And so that's also a great thing. See, I, I believe there's a lot of different types of dentists and different types of careers we have. And we just feel that there's one specific type that's greatly underserved right now. And that is the private dentist that wants to be on a level playing field with the larger groups, yep. yet they still want to benefit from the ownership of their practice. And that is where we are. Now, um, what do we pay? How much do we do? All of that, you know, um, we kind of take a different approach. So we make our infrastructure available to a private dentist that's in our group. And that private dentist owns 100% of the practice. 100%. So they are in our group, but they own 100% of everything. They make every decision. And when their practice becomes um, ready, when they're ready, when we're ready, they have the ability to then bring us on as a partner. And that is when we write them a big fat check and we then become partners. And the value that we place on their practice is probably around double what a private dentist in their area would put on their practice because their practice has been integrated into our infrastructure and it is well aligned with us. We have lower risk and they get a lot more money. So in our model, a dentist owns 100% of everything and still getting all the advantages. And then at some point we partner together and they get a big valuation. But even after that partnership, they still own um, their practice, but now they own it. You know, we, we are in a partnership on the practices assets. So you leave some, there's like, it's an equity and some ownership in the parent DSO or some upside in the parent DSO. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, well, as you probably know, every state has different regulatory structures or regulatory compliance structures to, to invest into dental practices or dental practice operations. So in essence, a simplistic way of thinking of it is before the partnership, they own 100%. After the partnership, we both own a certain percentage. Got it. We're all treated as equal rights, like equal, you know, like partners, like real partners, the way I think DSOs maybe should treat their partner, Dennis. Um, now, um, regu regulatory uh, issues around all of that means you have to do it in a very compliant way that's to the law that's allowed, right? And we make sure that we always do that. Um, so from one state to another, legally, it might look a little different. Uh, the end result is probably going to be very similar. Quick question for you, Scott. Are you establishing like a geographic footprint of those hundred practices or do you have guys in all different states that you're um, affiliated with? It's all over the country. Um, however, it's, it's centered around an entrepreneurial dentist. So not all of the dentists in our group want multiple locations, but most of them do. And so we'll take an entrepreneurial dentist and help them build a cluster of locations for them. Um, so that is how we're, we're kind of groups of, we're clusters all over the country. Also, we have, you know, being in 17,000 practices already, uh, we've got a lot of infrastructure and boots on the ground in, in different parts of the country. And ha having built, you know, a call center and a billing center and all of that, we, we have centralized a lot of the operations. So it doesn't matter where they're located. We can still do the billing and insurance and marketing and IT and phones and all that, and no matter what region they're in. And then you've gotten a lot of data, which we saw, like Craig was talking about. You know, I know we've been talking super overarching themes here. I want to go granular here for a little bit and get back yeah, thank into you. the things that will help. Um, you know, a lot of the listenership. So, you, Scott, you had mentioned that a lot of dentists like talk about multiple locations and the entrepreneurial stuff. And, and we hear as well, a lot of guys and gals who want to go from one to two. Um, what would you say kind of as, as you grew your practices? I know it seems like you did seven all at once, but for, for the organic kind of growth, what would you say are some of the biggest struggles that you see in, gro in practice growth? Well, I'll tell you what's common is that one practice is super successful 
and the mm -hmm. dentist wants more. Right. So then the dentist builds practice number two, which is mediocre, and then they want more, and they build practice number three, which loses money. Mm. The profits of practice number one pay for the losses of practice number three, and the dentist has quadrupled the, the work, and right. that's normal. And every dentist doesn't think it's them um, because they're so successful, they just think it can be repeated. So I think most dentists should never attempt to have more than one location. Mm -hmm. There's so much profit to be had in one location when doing things right, <coughs> culture and having great clinical care that going to two or three, uh, I think you can hit the same financial goal in one with much less risk. Now, what are the hard things about two and three? Um, well, anything that takes you, is hard to do in two or three locations. And sometimes we think that's just the dentistry, but it's not. A lot of times the majority of the profit comes from ex you being extra good. So an associate dentist will only produce half as much as you or less. And then you gotta pay him for that. And the associate dentist is not going to inherently see things and manage things just through their normal presence like you do. So when you have a second location with an associate, um, the financials are completely different. But on top of that, that's assuming they're good. Many times they're not. Many times they have no intention of staying more than six months or a year. Um, many times the patient flow isn't all that great because, you know, your patient flow is good because you've been there for five years. But this new practice doesn't have you and the patient flow isn't as good. Just all kinds of things go wrong. I mean, a ton of things go wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it's just a financial disaster, I think for many dentists now, you know, how, how do some dentists do it? Well, well, they are very good at the business side or they're very lucky that the area is strong enough to overcome their lack of business skill. And, um, you know, if, if people have never had a business plan, have never tracked their reappointment rates and their, case acceptance percentages and don't have a big training platform and they don't have a hundred page checklisted manual on what a treatment coordinator should do. And you know, they don't have all that stuff. They're probably not ready to have multiple locations. Right. That means they just white knuckle it through the day and just make it work and make it make money in their one location. You can't white knuckle three locations. Um, so it's a, my opinion is it's a mindset issue. It's just a lack of, of the proper mindset. Someone that has three locations is not looking for every single one of them to be perfect. That person is saying no more than yes, because they know that it's a very strict model that will give them the fourth location to be profitable and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. So for example, when we look at practices to buy, we say no seven out of eight times. And it's hard to say no. We were literally say no. We think buying, we think seven out of eight practices should not be purchased by someone that wants multiple locations because we're really strict. We've got a formula that works and only a few practices will get through that funnel. Um, so it's a mindset change. Dentists are too emotional about this sometimes. Yeah, for sure. We get excited about decorating a startup practice and we want to have a Facebook live video like the other startups. We think that's exciting. And we get excited about, you know, having our own practice instead of working in a DSO only to buy a piece of crap practice that is possible to make profitable. Like, you know, it, it's an emotional thing. So, you know, I, I think uh, if someone wants multiple locations, they really need to invest in training, in coaching. They need to talk to a bunch of people that are doing it well. Um, it's a tough thing. It's yeah. not for the faint of heart. It reminds me of that book, uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Like everything you did to get to that requisite level of success in your first location actually screws up your second and third. Like you start off doing everything yourself, not delegating, getting shit done. And the second location, third location, you cannot be there. It's a process of reinventing yourself along the way. You have to keep reinventing yourself. Good point. And another thing you pointed out earlier is that levels of success. I mean, everybody, we know that like this type of growth is not good for a business. You know, that, that means things are going down, expenses are going up and your profits going down. But we also can learn from your example, like meteoric success, like levels of growth like that 
can be really, really scary as well. The wheels fall off to your point of, you know, breaking all of your systems because you had too many dentists onboarding. So, you know, that it, it's, uh, it's humbling. Business is very humbling and I'm, it's neat. I mean, not, I'm not happy about it, but it's interesting to see even at your level how you're reinventing and reinventing. We're all reinventing as dentists. I mean, I have a large single location and I'm just figuring it all out now. Pete's got multi locations and you're um, in the process of refining your craft as well. It's cool. Yeah, you know, a, a year and a half or two years ago, we were breaking onboarding 10 practices in a month. And last week we onboarded five a day. Um, so, um, and our quality is way higher right now. So it does take a ton of innovation. That innovation comes from pain yeah. and not giving up. And that pain, people, I don't think people really understand the pain. It's, you know, dentists say, yes, I understand having set two or three locations, I'm going to have to be different. You'll hear dentists say, I really enjoy the business side of things. Ah, uh, I don't know. But if, if a dentist really enjoys the business side of one practice, they're not going to have time to do the business side of three because they're probably doing it all. Um, and so, and the pain you feel from this success or failure is excruciating. <laughs> Trust me. If you've never had, know, you never had a kid before, you don't really know what it's like to operate without sleep for a year, right? And if you've only had one kid, you have no idea what it's like to be expecting your fifth. That's me, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, it's a little similar. Um, I think a lot of us dentists that are super successful in one are basically teenagers from a business standpoint. Yeah. We, we are star of our football team in Podunk, Texas. And we have no idea what it's like to be an adult in the NFL. Um, but we sure do have the confidence. So um, it's humbling to uh, seek out the knowledge and information and the coaching before taking the next step. Yeah, I feel like I was a badass like five years ago. I was like the, you know, the, I felt like I was like the uh, uh, Stephen jo uh, uh, of the jobs of, of dentistry. Five years ago, so easy for me. And, yeah. But that's the being the toddler, the teenager. You move into your adolescent, I mean, your adult phase. It's a whole different ballgame. It's true. Yeah. You're about to say something? It, it, just what you were describing is, is I, I was kind of smirking along the way because everything that you were saying is stuff that I struggled with as I kind of grew into four. And a lot of it was I didn't plan out far in advance. Like, okay, I can't replicate myself, you know, four times. So I had to really dive deep into kind of the systems of such and, and, and systematically extract myself from if I was going to be more in the business side, I had to, I had to systematically extract myself a little bit from, from clinical, which was hard because I was the founder of the practice. Right. And so it's all these disconnects and, you know, it's like working on the business in the business and right. And you're, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, and, but you hear, but people who hear multiple locations or giant practices, they think it's cool and sexy and to your point, Scott, it, it's, it, is, it can be, I guess, or maybe on the other side, but there's a ton of grit that is associated with it and a ton of pain along the way, um, and it sure as shit isn't easy. Um, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the, the juxta of it, I, I think. I don't know why. <clears throat> I personally don't know why that, that we as dentists crave that, you know, because you hear that a lot. Like, I'm going to open another location and another one, another one. And I don't know if it's because it's this it's this this – noise that we're hearing in the airways about private equity and exiting and that you have to have multiple locations because that'll make your practice more worth more or is it just like i don't know i mean can you can you give any indication to that scott yeah i think dentists in general i think we all have a chip on our shoulders i think okay. we're so used to being ranked at the top of the class and being well respected in our community yeah. making more money than anyone else in our family does and being the boss that 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 we are always looking to be bigger and better and spend more and do more and have more success and more ego. <laughs> I, you know, I, of course, I mean, very generalistic here. Obviously, we're not all like that, but I, I, think, I think that definitely exists. And um, it, it, it's, it's tough, you know. I mean, what we, what we try to do at our company, Dental Whale. Dental Whale is our, our parent company. What we try to do is take that mindset of wanting more success and provide the infrastructure needed to accomplish it without breaking. Mm -hmm. um, and to provide a, a true path on how to get it. Um, I, I think that there's also misinformation. Dentists think they can get 
a high multiple of EBITDA valuation for their practice if they've got more locations? No, they can't. It used to be they could. That day has passed. Today, to get a really high multiple, you have to have lots of locations with a ton of infrastructure and a, a solid path to go double and triple and quadruple the number of locations you have off that infrastructure. That is where you get the high valuations. People are paying you, in essence, for future credit, future growth. But when you have four or five or even eight locations and you, you're, you've done it in a way where you can't take that to 80, that you're not getting these ma massive multiples that, that people used to get. Um, so there's misinformation out there. So when you talk about the infrastructure, just to be clear, we're talking about centralized services, right? Like centralized call center, no? Here's no. Oh, okay. Um, let's think more simplistically than that. Okay. You've got four right now, Peter, right? Four practices. Mm -hmm. and, let, and let's say you get to six, and then okay. you want to sell, and you want to justify a high multiple. The only way you get that high multiple is if you can go from six to 60. Well, what will it take to go from six to 60? First of all, you took too long to get to six. So I don't think you can get to 60 if I buy you, right? Mm -hmm. But whatever it takes to get to 60 is what you need. You either need to have your own call center or use a call center. I don't know, whatever your model is. It's not even about a call center. It's about what is the formula that gets to 60? And do you have everything you need today in your company to make it there? So at 60, you're going to have to have doctor recruitment, doctor management, doctor training, and you're going to have so to have scalable systems, basically proof of scalable systems. Is that what you're saying? And you as a seller are going to try to justify that you can, that you do have it. Uh -huh. and the equity group is going to say, ah, we don't believe you. So we're going to give you a low value and we're going to lock you into the company by having you carry stock and then we'll give you an earn up. So if you're right, then you get to earn your company back. But if you're wrong, we, we have most of your company. Right. And, that, and so what you thought was hard work getting to six suddenly becomes easy compared to what you're going to have to try to do to save the rest of your company to get to 60. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Craig Spodak from the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and I am super fired up to talk to you guys about our summit happening October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. This is the opportunity to learn everything we've accumulated over the last 20 years of dentistry and business management. We're leaving it all on the table. There's nothing to sign up for afterwards. This is just two days of intense learning and mastermind sessions. We strongly encourage you to bring someone in your office that's a stakeholder, not just an employee, but someone that's actually following you and treats your business as their own. Because if you come back from this thing all fired up and you don't have your first follower or someone to help implement, it's gonna be very difficult. So once again, October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. Registration is filling up very, very quickly and the tickets are almost sold out. So go to Bullet bulletproofdentalpractice.com forward slash summit and reserve your spot today. See you soon, people. You know, we just spoke about PE. So why is there this play to, to sell off the PE? Isn't there a way to do it another way? Why do you have to sell it? I mean, if it's, if it's providing a return that beats the market, why would you want to sell the company? Like why? This is, this is, some of this is greed. So we dentists are, we don't have the intention of doing this for 30 years. Yeah. I was going to say it's unsustainable. Sometimes it's unsustainable for that dentist. Like, you know, yeah, we, we want to build it quick, build it now while people are out there buying it and we want to make millions and we don't necessarily have the intention of living with it forever. I think I say we, um, Denwell does, but we have the intention of living with it forever. But I think that a lot of dentists that are trying to build their own groups do not intend to live with it forever. Otherwise, they'd only add one practice every few years, maybe, right? They do it in a very stable way and only when the time is right, only when the practice is perfect for that. But these dentists that are trying to roll things up quick, they're trying to get out quick too, probably, because it's right. unsustainable. Yeah, it was some of the statistics you were talking about that lecture like blew me away that you figured out from all the practices that you had. Um, 
worked with that a schedule capacity graph. I'm looking at it. I snapshot that, that at 10 or 11 days fu fully booked out, how you're seeing that erosion of profit. I learned that the hard way. You know, you, you get busier and busier and busier and you feel really good about being booked out for two or three months, but you're seeing your um, revenue per client going down as well, which is wild. Yeah, so Dennis may not understand this. So um, we measured the profit of all of the practices we were connected to and compared the profitability to how many days booked out they were. And we had a way of calculating that days booked out. We have, we have a very standard way of looking at that. And what we found is that as we got booked up more and more and more, our profit went up until we hit this tipping point. And after that, which was 11 business days, after we were booked out more than 11 business days, our profits started going down and our no-show rates started going up. Incredible. So, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, let's not just focus on the money here. What's it like for the patients, right? to constantly have to wait so long to get anything done. I mean, I can't stand being a patient with my doctor because it takes me six or eight weeks before I can get seen for anything. Yeah. And then what's it like for the staff to constantly have to make excuses? Um, and, you know, and we think we're doing well because our schedule's full, but at the end of the day, we had a bunch of patients drop off. <coughs> it's just bad for patient care. It's bad for profit. It's bad for everyone. Scott, I had a question, clarification for that. Was that booked up for doctors or hygiene or it didn't matter? The data showed it across the board. Yeah, we tracked both. And what we found is that most practices have very similar levels of being booked out in both doctor and hygiene. Not all of them do, um, but, but most of them do. And so we looked at the ones that had the similar levels. So you, you could view that uh, the way we calculate it, you could view it as an average. So the takeaway I got from it in leaving, it was essentially 10 to so two and a half average dental work week is four days. So if you're booked out more than two and a half days, two and a half weeks, rather in a practice, you will have a, you, you need to look at either onboarding some help, opening up some bandwidth. Is this, is this accurate? Uh, it's really two weeks. We didn't, we didn't consider if you were open or not. We just added, added up business days. Business so, days. Okay. All right. Well, weekdays. Um, right. well, I'm, trying, I'm trying to put it down into, into generalized terms. Cause like I said, most practices, you know, most single practitioners are open four days a week. Yeah. So, so it's two weeks and yeah, two if you're weeks, booked out anywhere, if you're close to two weeks booked out, you either need to expand or you need to drop demand. Right. So, Expanding could be adding hours, adding ops, adding days, adding dentists, adding location, right? Expanding or insurance or yeah, add, dropping demand could be dropping insurance or dropping demand could be just don't market as much. I know it sounds crazy. Yeah, it does. Why spend money on marketing to push patients into no-show land, right? So I would prefer to keep marketing heavily and drop insurances instead. Um, but what, what, you know, it doesn't matter. You either yep. have to cut demand or increase capacity, expand. If you we'll leave one. it is, you got a problem. Take one of them, right. The other thing I thought was interesting, and I want you to elaborate on this, is was the um, time in the life cycle, what, uh, time in the calendar where it's most profitable to onboard new patients. Is that, did I get that? I was, I'm, I'm, I'm referencing a slide that I saw back in Phoenix. Is that ringing a bell? Yeah, I think you're talking about the slide where we looked at every month on our marketing results and we found- Yeah, the marketing data, ROI, average average per client. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? I think that was fascinating. Yeah, so January, February, March are typically the best months of the year when you look at the cost to acquire a new patient and the ROI associated with it. Meaning it's the lowest cost per new patient with the highest ROI in January, February, March. Okay. Also, typically, uh, August um, is, is good. The worst times of the year for marketing are December and um, many times April to May and September. Um, those are, are typically the lower, the lower months. It, do, it doesn't necessarily mean though that you shouldn't market, but um, it, it just, you just need to know that so you can make the right decision about how you do things. So if you're in a startup practice, you got to market anyway. Yeah, you can actually market more in those cruddy times of the year because you need the patient flow. Whereas if I think, I think what I like, sorry, Scott, I think what I like most about that information is that so many of us, so many dentists, or let's just call it advertising dentists, set it and forget it. Right? Like, here's my marketing budget. It's three thousand dollars a month, or five thousand, or ten thousand, and it's a set it and forget it. And I'm just going to stay that across the way. 
And so what I like is that you have kind of a dynamic pricing model where you've, you've found the best return on the investment. And, and I think we should, the takeaway should be, we should, we should learn to modify with that data, you know, obviously go, go hard and heavy in January and August. And, and um, if we want to, to maximize our return, is that accurate? That, that is accurate. I think that as an industry, we've become a little asleep to things. So we're just used to having automated texts for confirmations and we're used to just doing whatever the marketing company says with the same plan every month. And, you know, um, I, I think we're catching ourselves now as an industry and as a profession where we're getting blindsided a little bit by the costs going up from the supply companies and by reimbursement rates going down and by competition from the DSOs. And we have to change. We have to be smarter. We have to act like we're not in the dental business, but in the restaurant business. We better run a strong business that can survive the restaurant business. Um, and 10% profit margin if you're lucky. Yeah, we, we just don't, you know, and, and it's tough. I mean, I, I, we're all working on this. We're all trying to innovate and do things better. But at the end of the day, no matter what I say or do, as a service provider to dentists, at the end of the day, if the dentist does not change their mindset, stuff will probably not get done and not change. So we dentists need to realize better that we are both going after clinical excellency and business excellency. And we can't just keep thinking if we treat people well, we'll do fine. And I also don't believe we should minimize all of this. We shouldn't say, well, I, can, I don't need all that much. Um, because what I'm seeing is dentists that don't need all that much and aren't growing, they're getting less and less and less. It, you know, I mean, think about how many dentists probably live in the same neighborhood as their hygienists. Because at the end of the day, they're not making that much money from their practice. They got huge debt payments. And, you know, we, we just need to be smarter about this. And in today's day and age, you know, there's, you can, you can't, you, there's no such thing as plateauing, which I talk about. Like sometimes it's like, I'm kind of good where I am. I'm like, that means you're on the decline. Because if you're not in growth mode, then you have to be in decline. And especially in, in the day and age we're surrounded by, like the, the, the tech is advancing super fast you know, you know, our social, you know, just our advertising is advancing. If you're not staying current and kind of growing, then, then the environment around you is going to make you farther and farther decrease. Yep. Well, patients are demanding, you know, convenience. They're demanding technology for the longest time. We could be practicing dentists in a little strip mall in a, you know, a three operatory practice and not deliver what, you know, not deliver the highest tech or, you know, whatever else patients are demanding it now. So, there's multiple disruptors forcing us to, to change. And like you said, Pete, if you're not evolving, you're dying. And uh, it will be one day in the near future where the dentist will wake up and realize they're completely obsolete. I think it's happening all over the place. So well, all of us dentists have a built-in level of success, I believe. Mm -hmm. So no matter what situation we're in, we're probably going to get this type of case acceptance. We're going to diagnose this kind of dentistry and we're going to hit this kind of level of productivity. Um, I think what we're really talking about is a situation where we want more than that because it's, we're either not high enough or because we want to be more successful. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even when all of this change is done in our kind of industry, all these factors have really kind of taken a hold. We're going to have private dentists that are successful, but the difference is that um, what we think we should make is going to be different than what we're actually making. Mm -hmm. What we think the practice should be worth is going to be different than what it finally is actually worth. And it's that change that I don't think we're all owning yet. Yeah. So if I'm making 250 grand as a dentist and I say, well, that's good enough for me. Well, that's fine. But um, it, it's going to be much harder over time to make more than that if that's just my base level, my built-in level. Also, specialists. Holy cow. I know. I'm so happy you're bringing that up. My God, that's like Peter and I's mantra right now. Wait, let him finish. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. I know I get what you'll say, but I'll tell you, we have periodontists coming to our company saying, help me build five GP practices so I can still be doing implants. <laughs> we have orthodontists that are shrinking with general dentists doing uh, ortho and shoot. Things like Invisalign opening retail centers and Smile Direct expanding. I mean, things are changing. We've got our own dentists are doing um, uh, 3D printed surgical guides with, assisted with comb beam to place implants. 
I mean, what is that doing with the world surgeon, right? So yeah, we had this conversation. We were in Orlando this past weekend at speak at the, the profitable dentist and Mark Casas was there. And we did an impromptu kind of podcast and we were talking about this exact thing and saying how I call this gen- this generation, like the rise of the super GP, where if I was a specialist, I'd be super scared because technology is going to disrupt a lot of referrals technology and just kind of is going to disrupt all this. And I would be, scared if, if your pipeline was dependent upon your neighborhood general practitioner. Yep. The other factors are going to force this too. When, when the neighborhood general practitioner makes less and less money, it's mm. going to push them into learning. Uh, more. So all the factors are pointing to dentists, GPs doing more specialty procedures. Um, so specialists just need to understand this and, yep. um, you know, and, and, and adjust. Now it's tough though because all of this sounds. How do you how do you adjust to that as a specialist? <laughs> like, so give me the plan for the local the oral surgeon that might be listening to this. If he's thinking about building up a mega oral surgery practice with six oral surgeons, that's his dream. Well, what would your advice be to that guy? Don't. Yeah, I mean, I'd say if you really want to be entrepreneurial as a specialist, one avenue I'd consider is owning GP practices. Wow. Um, And that's what I would do, probably, since you asked me. But, you know, all of this sounds doom and gloom, like the sky is going to fall. And it's not. It's going to take a long time for the sky to to start getting lower and lower and lower. And in some areas of the country, it's going to take a really long time for change. Yeah, rural Iowa. So we're, we're just like looking out 10, 20 years in the future. Uh, it's not going to be like that overnight, but that's also a problem because when things slowly change like that, people yeah. slowly get used to it and get yeah. caught flat footed and don't make it, don't make a leap to the left. Right. So, um, and, and part of that's already happened, Scott, we've been hearing about the end of the solo practice for easily 15 years. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember being on dental town, like, you know, 15 years ago and how people were banging on the drama about the end of the solo practice. So we're almost desensitized to this, but things are changing to your point. The sky is lowering big time, big time. For most of us that live in, in more uh, populated uh, cosmopolitan competitive areas, the sky is lowering quickly. And um, I, I think we're desensitized because it's like everybody's been saying this for so long. I think there's a lot of specialists like, yeah, that's a bunch of bullshit. That's not really going to happen. But I mean, listen, when you can fabricate a surgical guide and it, let's say you have a GP that's been out of school for five years and they have a really good handle on cone beam and uh, virtual, uh, guided planning, they have the tooth in a box with a stent before the implant's even placed. I'd rather go to that guy than the oral surgeon that's been out for 20 years that has the art that he's developed over 20 years. Technology will displace that, that oral surgeon. It's just the fact. I mean, that's what I would prefer. I would prefer that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but, you know, the sky that, that is falling, I guess, if we're going to just call it that, it's not falling everywhere. So there's a whole kind of silent subset of dentists that are extremely successful with their own one practice. And there's another silent subset that are extremely successful with groups. And those docs are killing it right now. And, and it might be that this, may, this might be the golden age of that. Hmm. See, the golden age of everyone doing well was in 2005. Yeah. That, that's the peak income level for dentists. That's when we had extreme makeover and Zoom whitening and patients wanted instant ortho. And we were telling people, no, I don't want to prep your teeth for veneers, right? Like, that's 2005. Um, today is totally different. But so the average dentist today is not in the golden era anymore, the golden age, but there is a subset of highly successful individual practice or solo practices and another subset of entrepreneurial dentists um, owning multiple locations. Like I just had a Facebook message (coughs) two days ago from one of our startup docs. He's been open about three and a half years now. He thinks that they're going to be collecting 4.6 million this year. And uh, he asked a question to me about uh, staff bonuses. And that's just an example of like that guy, let me say 4.6 million in collections from a startup. He's not even five years old yet. There's a subset of those dentists, those practices that are doing very well and probably listening to this podcast. So it's important that we don't disconnect from them. 
because they have a tremendous opportunity to be better than everyone else with their own two hands. And they also have, others have a tremendous opportunity to own multiple locations in the right way. They're doing very well. They're just yeah. a smaller group. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's not too many industries that are discussing what's the best model for their industry. I wonder if the restaurateurs get together, you know, and a Chick-fil-A guy meets like a Morton's guy and discusses what's a better model. You know, there's room for everyone. And I, I meet with dentists. I met with one on Friday for three hours, just giving my time to help people. People think they want something. They want to be like Pete or they want what I have or maybe what, what you're doing, Scott. And, and they don't really spend a whole lot of time figuring out why they want it. They just kind of think that's what they want. I remember having a conversation with the dentist and he's like, I really want to create what you have. And I'm like, well, tell me why. And he's like, well, more money, less work. I was like, hey, 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 buddy, how much do you make? Let's, let's just get down to brass tacks. How much do you work? How much do you make? The guy like does three days a week in his office. He's netting out like 900 grand. I was like, that's a pretty good job. He's like, yeah, but I have a job. I'm like, yeah, but LeBron has a job too. LeBron gets to show up. He doesn't have anything that's working you know, beyond when he's on the court. But every time he puts his foot on the court, he makes a shit ton of money. So, you know, and, and it's not even at 900 grand is my barometer for success. But if you're doing what you love and you're making two or 300 grand, that's a really, really good profession. And that's a really good thing for you to keep doing. There's, no, there's nothing to set that says you have to do something different. You have to have multiple practices. I think it's hysteria that's created by our industry that says you have to be the CEO, you have to do all these things in order to be relevant. I think it's a lot of doom and gloom speech that we have. And, and to your point, the, the changes that are happening, the sky is lowering, but I think that I think we've made a full circle on it. If you're going to do what's right for the patient and create a really good value-based practice and you have a good following, there's plenty of room for you to do to for be sure. successful into the future. I really do. I don't, I, you know, I, but I do think the macro trends are pointing to a different, you're going to have to evolve. You have to evolve these days. Yep. I agree. And, um, you know, I actually had us, I, I lectured at the practice on fire meeting and my entire lecture was based on one word. Why? And, uh, if we don't, if we don't figure out the why first, we're going to go down the wrong path. For sure. Um, you know, some of our docs want 10 million bucks in 10 years. And so, and they want it for their specific reason and we help them get there. Some docs want one successful practice and they don't want to, they don't want to ever retire. They just want to have three days a week and make 900 grand. Right. Um, and we help them get there. And some docs just don't want to manage anything and they want to work. They, they just want to work for someone else. And, and so there's, you know, but why they're making those decisions is more important. You know, yeah. what is that doc doing with 900 grand? You know, if, if, he, if he doesn't even have a why yet, first get a why. Yeah. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, the job becomes a means to the why. Right. Now, the, we clear the fog away in our decision making. It's so much easier to make a decision when there's a purpose behind it. Of course, and fulfillment rises from that too. You're doing work that actually resonates and fulfills you. It's purpose-centered work versus, you know, making money. That's really, you know, if money's your primary motivator, you'll probably wind up being really unfulfilled at a certain point. I, I think that if you, if you get your purpose first, then you can make enough money for your purpose. And then some people will keep making more than that. Um, because once you're clear in your decision-making, things aren't that hard. Um, I know I have very specific purposes for me and I have very specific boundaries that I will not cross. And it might sound crazy what I'm part of now, you know, 850 employees and all that kind of stuff, but I am doing better financially now and have more time for my why now than I ever did when I was lost. When I was lost, I just tried to run faster around every corner and try to make a little more money. And I was stupid. I was running past the wrong corners, yeah. pennies, right? So, uh, you know, I want to be healthy. I want to have a great family life. I give time to my church. I am a professional musician. I, I, I coach soccer and I, you know, I'm, I'm doing things with my friends, my wife every week. Like I have very specific things that I want to have and I will have, and I will not let work cross into that. And once I have those things, then I want to make the most money I can because we give money back 
So, um, but I will not white knuckle my work and bleed at the knuckles to grab an extra dollar if it's taking away from all my why. At the cost of everything else. Yeah, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's beautiful. I think that's great. I think we all need to remember that, you know. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, Scott, you're, yeah, you got to take care of yourself. Everything's got to be, that's what I was talking. Pete and I have a friend that we're working with. His name's Thor. I was talking to Thor about that today. What a name, Thor, huh? If Thor can't help you, who can? Like either him or the Avengers. I don't know. But he was like, you know, everything's going to serve you. And I don't mean that in an egoic or selfish way, but your mission is to help dentists. So let, let, but you have to serve that mission. That's your mission. Or, you know, being with your family. But if Scott's not good, then no one's good, right? Like, so yeah. like, that's, I think that's what you're saying is that, you yeah. know, Scott as a person, as a human has to be taken care of. And that means friends and family. And, you know, you have some defined boundaries. And I think that's, I think that's great. That's yeah, great. Awesome. Scott, you've, uh, you're a busy dude. You've given us a lot of time. We've both been super excited to have you on. You're doing, uh, done great things. And, uh, you know, when I heard you graduate in 2005, I immediately went, Oh, geez. Again, yeah, what the heck have I been doing? Craig, and you really must've felt that way, right? Yeah. And I've been out since 98. <laughs> yeah. I mean, y'all look really old on camera. It's just for yeah. excess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, man, I appreciate your time. And, and again, um, you're doing great things. Keep it up. And um, yeah, man, we're, we're rooting, rooting from you from the sidelines for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. If we need to talk again, let's do it. All right, Bell. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. All right. Later. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast source. Check out BulletproofDentalPractice.com for video interviews and text BULLETPROOF to 345-345 to stay connected to us for special announcements. Have a great day.